this note was uh, passed up uh, for you to read out loud, of course. We're only here to judge you. <laughs> now, that's something I know something about. My name is Emma, and I'm a grateful recovering Al-Anon. Well, I'm short. <laughs> you were supposed to fix it. I've got to lean into the mic. Okay. Now we ready? Okay. I, uh, it's something to stand up here in front of your peers. Uh, I've known most of you for several years. I've been coming to Air Assembly for some time. Uh, I don't like to draw attention to myself. Uh, I'm, I'm, you won't believe it, but I am shy. I'm an introvert, truly. Uh, a lot of the stuff I do is, is my act. I've got a great act, folks. <laughs> I've polished it for years. I'll tell you a little bit about what I was like and what happened and then what happened since I've been here. And uh, after I was introduced to Al-Anon, I think I was worse than I was before I found it. <laughs> <laughs> they tell me that's being unteachable. And uh, it took a while. But I was born in the northeast Arkansas town of Brooklyn. We had 300 people, and we sat about halfway between Paragool and Jonesboro. Uh, I had one brother who was eight years older than I. At three years of age, uh, my mother and dad separated due to drinking. Uh, there was never a divorce in the family, but it bothered my brother much more than myself. He could remember having the father in the home, and I could not. We were poor people. Um, but in a town that small, the ones that had shared with the ones that had not, and I was never aware of being poor uh, until I got married at 19 and moved to Flint, Michigan. And then I found out how other people lived, and I thought, we were poor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was never really a problem. There was always plenty to eat and plenty to wear and a warm place to sleep, and I was loved and pampered and spoiled and, and those kind of things. My mother raised me basically just she and I. Uh, my brother... He finished his last year of high school in California, then went into service and was gone from home at that point. I was raised without responsibility. I wasn't aware that my mother had to scratch hard sometimes to make in meats and keep food on the table. That was never a problem to me. I was never informed of it. Um, I knew that I had a lot of clothes given to me, but that didn't make me any difference. You know, they were nice. I didn't care. And as I said, in the small town, they did not make a difference in me. I, I just belonged. I was born there and lived there for 19 years. And the older families there, we were all raised together, and I did not feel that I was neglected. The thing that I found in doing inventory later was that I was raised without responsibility. When it's just a mother and a small girl in the house, I did not have to do housework. I did not have to cook. I did not have to do anything but be good, play and be good. And that's what I did. Uh, in later years, at 40 years of age, I had responsibility dropped on me. And I had to grow up then, and I didn't like it at all. As I said, I graduated from high school in Brooklyn. And, of course, the boys in Brooklyn dated the girls in Jonesboro, and the girls, the boys in Jonesboro dated the girls in Brooklyn. That's the way it went. A few Bono jumped in there there once in a while. <laughs> but uh, so I be when I began to date, of course, I dated one of the guys in town. Did not date until I was about 16. Um, 
did not date a lot. So it, it wound up that after this, uh, my husband went into service, got out of service, we got married. My mother was worried. She's hurt, want me to hurt and get married. I was 19, you know. <laughs> and she was, a, all the other girls were married and she just knew I was going to get in trouble. So, anyway, that's, that's small town, folks. If you come from a small town, you know what I'm talking about. But I should have had a clue to my personality then if I had been in a thinking stage. I called the wedding off twice. I was engaged a year and dated the guy out of St. Louis when he was gone. You know, I really didn't want to get married. <coughs> Excuse me. But really there was, you know, what do you do? It's a small town and expect you to get married and you put the announcement in the paper and you backed out once and so you get married. In two months, my husband, we lived with my mother, of course. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> two months, almost to the day he came home and announced I'm catching the bus tomorrow to Michigan and, and you can follow me in two weeks. I'd never been away from home. Never been away from home. And I said, okay. And that set the pattern. I'm going to do so-and-so. Okay. Because I didn't rock the boat. I did not like confrontation, and I did not rock the boat. And I was taught that if, uh, when you married, you did all the nice wifely things, like you took care of the house, you did this, you did that, and you didn't rock the boat. So we moved to Michigan and lived two years. Um... I had my first experience of staying alone nights in Michigan. And for about two months, I slept terrified in a cold sweat all night long. Terrified of being alone at night in a strange city. <coughs> Excuse my cough, I do have a, a throat problem. The first time that I realized that it was not uh, get married and Rose Cottage ever after was about... Less than six months after I was married, one night, the husband did not come home. And two women knocked on my door, and I answered the door. It was about midnight. And I said, who are you? And they said, we're going to go find our husbands. You want to go with us? <laughs> and uh, I assumed that we meant me, and they did, and I went. They took me downtown Flint, Michigan, to the uh, Chrysler plant, what those, those big plants downtown in Flint, when the midnight shift let out. And we parked on the street and we watched everybody come out of them plants. And by this time I'm getting a little scared because I don't know these women. And the plants emptied and no husbands. We'll go to the lake. They're at the lake. And I kept saying, what lake? You know. <laughs> and so we go to the lake and sure enough, there they are. It's uh, three men sitting in a car just drinking and having a good time. Well, they get out and do their thing and jump and scream and holler and we jump in the car and go home. Well, that was not the last time this happened. But you can believe it was the last time I went looking for him. I stayed at home and waited. Um, we were married 12 years. A lot of my Alanonism surfaced during that marriage and I didn't know what it was. And for information's sake, my husband is not the alcoholic that qualified me for Al-Anon. He was not alcoholic. He was just one of those, you know. And uh, you did not admit failure. You did not go home to a small town of 300 divorced. Uh, 
I knew that if I could be good enough and do it right, it'd be okay. You did not, uh, when the boss is calling the post office at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, where's Gregson? Uh, he hadn't come home yet. He's sick in bed. You know, I was making the lies and taking care of things long, long before the alcohol ever came into my life. As I said, that marriage lasts 12 years, and um, we had a son of that marriage. He's 25 now, and uh, he's a tall, beautiful, blonde-headed man, child. <laughs> and uh, I take full credit for that. <laughs> for a long time, it was Gregson. He's just got Gregson blood in him, you know. And you told me in a meeting one time, we had a meeting one time on the mice, and we got to listening to ourselves, and it was my son, my car, my home, my this, my that, my children. And uh, I suddenly realized that he was not my son. He was our son, but I raised him as my son. And so I have to take credit and I have to take responsibility for some of the things and traits that he has that I instilled in him. And I thought they were good, you know. <laughs> anyway, another story. But he, he doesn't have any drug or alcohol problems, but he has living problems. And we were grazed very close together. It was he and I for a long time. And I still have a hard time cutting emotional ties. Now, I can handle most other people, but I cannot handle the emotional tie to my son, so I still deal with that. And for a long time, it was, uh, I thought that, you know, I, I just, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then one day I came to the conclusion, I can't throw him out, and that's okay. I don't know that I should. When I can and the time comes, I will. I can't do it today. And I'm not going to beat myself over the head with a switch because I can't. So he's married. He went to the Army, got married, got divorced, and he's back home. And I'm praying for another marriage. <laughs> but anyway, a good one, you know. But anyway. But a lot of this took place. My personality was formed a long time before I became down on. Now, my mother played a big part in my life. She was a very strong-willed person. From necessity, she had to raise me by herself. There was many times when, uh, in the fall, with what we ate was what we picked cotton with that day. Now, that, you know, that's not as bad as it sounds. We were never without food, and we gardened and canned, and, and people that had more, as I said, in town, they gave us what they had. And we never went without food, but there was times when I can remember back that she really did wonder, what am I going to feed today. And we were laughing and talking today about bologna, you know, bologna. We used to go to the cotton patch and we would take cold biscuits and bacon, or cold biscuits and sausage, or a fried egg, whatever was left over from breakfast made the lunch. But every once in a while we could buy a pound of bologna. And that was a treat to take bologna sandwich to the cotton patch for lunch. Now you can believe it. Any of you came off the cotton patch knows that. But uh, she played a large part in my life. I've come to believe that we kind of had a relationship, of love-hate relationship. We couldn't live together, and we couldn't live apart. And I don't know if that's because we was too much alike or too much opposite, but it just, we didn't gel well. But we were never apart from each other more than two years of my lifetime. Now, my husband and she did not get along at all. <laughs> he did what he pleased. 
But she could control me, but she couldn't control him. I mean, he just blowed it off. If he, she didn't like it, you know, hey, I don't care what you tell her. I ain't going to do it, and it's gone. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of time, trying to manipulate the husband into apologizing to the mother or trying to talk to the mother, quit being so hateful. You know, trying to fix it a lot of time. The only time they really got along was vacation time. She didn't drive or have a car, but she had more money than he had. <laughs> so it was nothing to say, well, what are we going to do this vacation? My husband said, well, I don't know. I need new tires. We better not go too far. Well, I'll buy the tires if you'll, if you'll take a so-and-so. So they would take a couple of weeks and get their act together. I was never consulted. I was never asked. <laughs> nothing. But they didn't go without me, you can bet it. I go anywhere. I went to horse races at Santa Anita that I absolutely hated. But they wasn't going without me. <laughs> if they was going to go have fun, I was too. <laughs> this marriage lasted 12 years. And uh, we came back, we lived in California for 10 of those years. And I loved California. I really did like California. And it wasn't all bad. I've done an inventory on this marriage. I was in Al-Anon five years, six years, seven, some years. I don't know about time. It was a long time. And one afternoon I was driving to the country of my uncle's and a thought hit me, you need to make an amends. And I thought, well, maybe, you know. And, uh, but I did have an amends to make to my ex-husband and I did make that amends. Now, I was not nice when the divorce came. Now, he didn't have anything to get. So I just decided to be hateful. <laughs> and uh, to tell you what I was capable of doing, we had a son at three or five years old then. And I said, you don't get the son. You ain't getting my son, you know. Well, now, he didn't want my son. <laughs> but, uh, you, don't, you know, when you're fighting, you don't let that out. You, that's, you know, that's heavyweight over here. You don't pull that out to the last... And so I told him, he says, I'll take him one day. He'll come to me. And before I'd ever known the alcoholic, I looked him right in the eye and I said, you take my son, I'll cut your heart out and chew on it. <laughs> and he told the lawyer. <laughs> and it wasn't long after that we had another set too. And I told him that he was... <laughs> going straight to hell when he died that he had committed so much that he could never be forgiven and he would pay 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 he had lost his soul and he believed it and he told the lawyer <laughs> so one day I'm talking to the lawyer and he says Emma can I ask you a question and I said yeah would you ever uh, he said well I don't know how to say this and I said well what do you what do you want well, would you ever really hurt Gregson? Would you ever? I thought he told you, but I said he told you about chewing on his heart, did <laughs> <laughs> So all my sickness did not come after the alcoholic. I brought it with me. We came back from California. We lived here two years, and then the divorce came. The, the one that I knew would come, you know. You know. But it wasn't going to be me, and it wasn't. I hung in until he left. I, <laughs> I wasn't going to be the one to leave if it took me to 110, you know. When I'm right, I'm right. <laughs> so, 
done in the divorce. Now, at this point in time, we've always been church people. I have. <laughs> I taught an adult ladies' Bible class, 35 to 45 year old women. Five years. Did a good job, too. So I had decided, if that's the way it was, I had paid my dues to society. I had put up with my mother and put up, put up with that no-account husband. And now he was gone, and I had yeah, done my duty, you know. And I was going to get into church, and I was going to be true blue and straight, and that always has been. I was too scared to do anything else. And uh, some Sunday morning, in would walk my man, and it would be perfect. And I would find someone that liked to go to church and do the things I did and live the, quote, good life. That phase of my life lasted nine years. As I said, I don't give up easy. Well, and as time went on, this, this image would shift. Sometimes I think I want to marry a preacher. And then sometimes, no, not a preacher. That's, that's too much. <laughs> Maybe a deacon. <laughs> because I wanted to, to play. You know, I didn't really want to have to be that strict. <laughs> so, as I said, that phase passed. Now, sometime at the end of this nine years. Now, I mean, if you... I mean, I was looking for the right one, and the wrong ones did not get the time of day. Fall dead in the road, I walk around you, you know. If you were a man, forget it. I had, you know, I took all the abuse I was taking off you guys. And I was sitting in my office one day. Now, that's how it was, and this is what happened. I've never figured out God's reasoning. <laughs> I was sitting in my office one day, and I looked up across the room, and there was this man doing his thing. He was from an outside source. And I looked over at my friend. I have an earth friend that I've had through all of it. She's the one that stayed with me. She really belongs here, but she... Uh, she'll get, she's been to a couple of meetings. She'll get back sooner or later. And I looked at her and I said, I like that. And she liked to fell out of her chair. <laughs> now, it, I'm serious. I said, I like that. And she said, I don't believe it. And I said, yeah, I do. Well, the day wore on. And before the day was over, to show you how quickly the disease can progress. <laughs> now, this is from somebody that, you know, I've never had experience in what I'm getting ready to go into now. <laughs> this, this, is, this is just born, I was just born that way, I guess, and it just bloomed. I don't know what happened. Before that day was over, I knew that man's name where he lived, his marital status, how many children he had, and that he was neighbors to my friend that sat in front of me at work. Well, by the time the night was over, <laughs> I had went to see my friend, <laughs> and I had made a phone call. And this is, this, I don't believe I did this. <laughs> I got on the phone and I said, I'm taking a political survey. <laughs> Would you please answer some questions? 
And the first thing I hear is, pee, 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 pee. <laughs> I said, I'm really serious, sir. Would you please answer some questions? And there's more laughter. Well, what do you want? And I asked him, are you in favor of President so-and-so-and-so? Chuckle, chuckle, yeah. And he says, I know who this is. And I said, no, you don't. And he said, yes, I do. And it was an argument from then on. <laughs> but that's how, that's how I met the alcoholic. That's when the alcoholic came into my life. Uh, now... What I had to admit later on, and it, it, did, it didn't come easy. Now, this all sounds funny, but those of you who have, have been through things like this and have been in Al-Anon and come, there was pain with this, you know. I did suffer, and it did hurt. But when I can look back at it and laugh, it takes a little off the edge. But that alcoholic did not especially care for me. He did not like me, but he didn't like me enough to let me interfere with his drinking. You know, I was a pest is what I was. Now, here's a straight gal, church going, you know, wanting to come into his life, and he's busy drinking himself to death. You know, it don't mix. I would do things like, I knew where the, ch the child was young, and I knew where the child went to the babysitter. I would get up in the morning. This is the addiction and the obsession of it. I would get up in the morning a half hour early, drive way out of my way to be on a particular street at a particular time when that man would be bringing his son to babysitter just so our cars could pass on the street. <laughs> he would see me. He never saw nothing. He drove with his nose in the road, you know, just... And then I would be upset at work because he did not speak to me. Well, that's not... He don't speak to nobody. Never did and don't now. You know, that's just the way he is. But I did crazy things. Well, I decided, all this part, I decided that if he had so much fun, I could go to the clubs. And my earth friend went to the clubs, I'll get her to take me with her. And I discovered the private clubs. And I loved them. I loved that party. I mean, you know, I loved honky-tonks, and I, lo I liked the music, I loved the dance, I liked the atmosphere. And if they get falling down drunk, I don't care, just leave me alone, you know, do whatever you want to do. But let me have my fun. I would spend a lot, most of my, the first part of my night would be spent trying to find the alcoholic. Now, we had private clubs in Paragould and Jonesboro. And my first run would be, I would go out to the VFW, check the parking lot. Now, I knew all the license plates of people I was looking for. <laughs> I would check the VFW. If I didn't find it there, I'd go across the street to the Eagles. If I didn't find it there, I'd drive to Paragould, which is 21 miles away. I'd check Winks. I mean, if, they, if you found them at Winks, it's a, you're in trouble. That, that was really a dump. <laughs> uh, Winks. Um, and then they had uh, Boot Hill, which that was another beauty. There was three or four clubs in town I'd check. Then I'd go back to Jonesboro. And at first I would go home. And then about 2 o'clock I'd make another run. You know. But then I discovered that instead of going home, we'd just go to the clubs. And then I discovered, you know, hey, you don't have to have an alcoholic with you to have fun. So it didn't take me long to learn the game. The only thing with the game is, if any of you are the kind of Al-Nine I am and, and went to the clubs, I didn't like the rules. I, you know, 
it was okay to go and drink and have a good time and party and, and have fun. But then, you know, they didn't want you to go home. And that, you know, so you have to really be tricky. Just about 11.30, you start moving, just wandering around, and you just wander off to the back door and split. <laughs> and they're saying, where'd she go? Where'd she go? <laughs> and that worked. Now, that worked for about a year. And it don't, the people that party in clubs all the time, it don't take them long to catch on to that. And you ain't no fun no more, you know. So that worked for about a year. And uh, I was still looking. I was still running the trails. And I had found me a new, uh, found me a new, new hideout. This part I'm not too proud of, but I did it, and that's all there is to it. Um, this alcoholic I ha um, lived in an area here, and right behind where he lived, there was another street, and there was a little, it wasn't a driveway exactly, it's just a little pull-off. And I could pull my car off in there, back in, turn the lights off, and I could watch that house. And I knew everybody that came in and everybody that went out. I knew when they came in, how long they stayed, and I spent many, many hours there, surveillance on that place. <laughs> now, if I couldn't find the alcoholic in my runs, I would go park in my spot, and I would wait to see what time he came home, who he came home with, how long they stayed, if it was male or female, whatever I had to know. And then I would go home and finish the night out crying, because more than often, I was very, very hurt. I was watching stuff that was really none of my business, but I could not not watch. I had to know. Well, the time came when, uh, that's a little bit about what I was like, so I, I think, you know, I've qualified myself. I think you can agree I do belong. <laughs> and then one time I got to looking for the alcoholic and I couldn't find him. Now, if I went more than a day and a half and couldn't find him somewhere, I figured I'd just lost the touch. You know, something is wrong. If I can't find them in a day and a half, they ain't there. You know, they're somewhere else. And so I thought, how to find out what happened? Where'd he go? Nobody would. No one would tell me that knew. If they knew, they didn't tell me, and some probably didn't know. I went to all the old bosses and the old haunts and everywhere I knew to go. But I thought, now, you're smart. If you just think, you can figure this out. And I thought of a lady's name to call that had worked with him. I thought, she'll know, and I can get her to tell me. I'll get her to tell me. And I called her, and I said, what you doing? And I knew her casually, but not, not on a base where she would confide in me. And she says, well, nothing. I said, why don't you meet me for a cup of coffee, and let's just go chat. And she said, well, okay. And little did she know, before I left that coffee house, I had another name to call to find out where he was. And I called it, and I used my little, my little cutesy voice, you know, and uh, they told me. I called, and they said, well, he's in treatment. And then uh, I knew I was in trouble because I couldn't get to him in treatment. And, the, you know, before I could... Uh, I could, you know, I could find him occasionally, and there, there was there was a few good times in there when, was, when he was not drunk, would sit and talk and whatever, and I would read into that, it's going to be okay now. You know, it's going to be okay now. I remember one time 
I was supposed to take dinner over the next night. Now, you know, us Alan you say, why don't you bring me over something to eat tomorrow night? Well, we'll go down and storm by a tub full. You know, anything to let us take care of you. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two, we'll continue in just a moment. And uh, so I went buzzing over there. He said, and if you'll excuse me a word, I promise Murp that I'd be nice to my language tonight. He said, you better have your ass here at 5 o'clock. I was there at 4.30, you know. <laughs> and I waited till 5.30. Nobody showed. So I thought, I can find him. And I got in the car and I tooled around town and I found the car, sure enough. Found the car, not the person. So I wrote a note on the car and left it on the windshield. I says, my ass was here at 5 o'clock. Where was yours? <laughs> Emma Nell Gregson. Like he would not know who left the note. <laughs> Emma Nell <Nail. laughs> And I went home, went to bed, come boldly awake at 2 o'clock in the morning and rose up in the bed and said, my God, I put my name on it. <laughs> put my clothes on, jumped back in the car, went back and took the note off. And I'm glad. Now, God was taking care of me that time. He had been picked up on DWI and he was in jail and that car sat there all weekend and his boss came in the next morning and would have found the note. And it would have made nothing, it would have meant nothing to anybody but me, you know. But I don't know why I felt it necessary to proclaim my identity. And no one knew my name was Nell, you know. <laughs> so from the time the alcoholic went into treatment, and I made the call to some people that were in AA and Al-Anon, after about three calls and me playing games and the man laughing at me, and I'd talk and he'd just, <laughs> and I'd think, why does he laugh all the time? You know, and he knew I was lying, you know. And it probably did sound, it probably sounded horrible to him. They said, would you like to go to Al-Anon? Yeah, more contacts, you know, sure I'll go to Al-Anon. And I started going to Al-Anon. Uh, the alcoholic went through treatment and has had continuous sobriety for 10 years plus. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Today I'm very grateful for that and I'm very proud of him. Needless to say, our relationship never resumed after that point. But that's okay. I fought with that for a lot of years, but uh, we talk about acceptance. And I always was under the contention that you will accept. It may depend on how you accept, but accept you will. And I did not accept that decision well, I'll tell you. And I started going down line, and I'd like to tell you a little bit now about go away from the alcoholic, per se, and get into what I was like when I came down on. Uh, a lot of my girls are here tonight, and two of them are here that was there when I came in. And let me tell you, <laughs> I was something else. I would not talk to anybody. Now, before I forget, I want to give you a little hint. Now, any of you that hesitate to do programs, don't hesitate too long. I was in Al-Anon four years before I did my first program in a meeting. Now, I mean, I was attending Al-Anon pretty regular for four years before I'd ever do a program. I hated you. God, I hated you. You know. But I wouldn't quit. And I don't know why. I just wasn't supposed to quit. And I'd come in the meeting and I'd say all this hugging and patting and 
and I would think, just one. I just wish one would come up and touch me. I would just knock him, you know, <laughs> just one. Now, when you get that attitude, and it, you know, I, I have a friend, she's a single lady and quite a bit older than I am, and we're always teasing her about marrying. And I'd never heard this expression before, but I probably carried it on my face for years and didn't know it. And they said, they called her Jolene and says, she's not in program. They said, you never will get married. Says, your mouth says no and your eye says hell no. <laughs> so I figured probably I was carrying a little bit of that element, no and hell no, you know. But I was very disappointed, I was very hurt, and I was very bitter. And I was in then to just surviving, just getting through it, you know, just... I didn't know what else to do. Didn't have anywhere else to go. But I first started going down on... Now, as I said, I love the clubs. And, and I still love a party. Anybody got a party going, let me know. I love parties. But uh, it was hard to break that habit. It was hard to break that habit of going to parties. And I would go to an al meeting. And at 9 o'clock, I'd be the first man out because I wanted to be at that club at 9.15 because it all started at 10 o'clock. And I didn't want to miss nothing. And I did that for about six months. And then someone told me that um, you don't really have to give up anything. Your lifestyle will change, and it will just fall by the wayside. And my lifestyle changed to the point that it was no longer of interest to me to go to the clubs. Um, it was no longer fun. The people I ran with and traveled with, you know, they kind of split up and drift away, and some moved and some married it, and it, was just, it just lost. You screwed it up is what you did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and now I'm going out to the clubs and I'm, I'm having a good time and I'm a, I see the drunks. I see them. You know, before they didn't want nothing to me. And now I see them and I watch them. And uh, what you tell me, I remember. And a drunk comes and says, you want to dance? And I'll say, no, you know, leave me alone. And it got to where it was repulsive to me. And uh, so, you know, it just lost, it lost its attraction. And the motivation was probably gone because the alcoholic was no longer there. But now, I have, to, I, ha I have to regress one thing. I promised someone that I'd tell you my drunk log. I got a drunk log. I've been knee-walking, wall-crawling drunk once. I mean, three-day drunk. I wasn't drunk three days, but it took me three days to get out of bed. <laughs> I had gone out to one of the private clubs. And a lot of people from my work were there, consequently. Now, in, that, in those years, now, this has been several years ago, I was a lightweight. You wouldn't believe it now. You can see how well I've got. Uh, I was short and light. And all my friends were out there, and uh, he was somewhere else, dancing with somebody else, having a good time, and I was aggravated. And I turned to my earth friend, and I said, I've earned it, I deserved it, and I'm going to get drunk. Just, She said, Okay. She picked up her coke and she walked to a table at the back of the room and sat down by herself. I said, go ahead. And so I started in. And I got with a table of my friends from work. And they said, what are you drinking? I said, oh, Charter. And they said, oh, Charter and what? And I said, whatever. You know. <laughs> so I wound up drinking straight old Charter. Now, if you ain't ever been sick on old Charter, by 12 o'clock I had drank about six straight old Charters in glasses about like these. And I had a ball. I'm telling you, from 9 to 12, the walls couldn't hold me. I could dance. I'm telling you, I could dance. 
Now Bonnie tells it, and she said I was I was just like wildfire, just everywhere, everywhere you looked, there was just going. <laughs> but the funny thing happened was we have a man that works at work, and he's six foot four, and lanky, and he was drunk too, and we just all having a good time. And I thought, now this ain't bad. This is what he's been doing all this time. And Roy says, you want to dance? And I said, yeah. And it's the fast one. And he just bent down to my five foot, and he picked me up around the waist, and I put Marmo short, and he picked me up, and I'm clearing the four like this. And Bonnie says, I never missed a step. Just... <laughs> about that but she swears and there's witnesses and I have to claim it so but about 12 o'clock I said Bonnie if we are going to walk from here and oh God I want to walk out if we're going to walk from here we better leave now she said okay we got up and walked across the Eagles dance floor and it's a big one and I made it they have a set of double doors and made it to the first door and I just kind of give it this you know and she's got me under one arm and trying to trip the lock and the man says do you need some help and she said, yeah, would you help me get her out these doors? And I'm, you know, I'm, well, they got me out of the doors and got me into the car and Bonnie took me home with her. And then I'm not hurting yet, understand, I just can't navigate. And she says, what you need is some food. <laughs> now she sat in and she cooked me hot biscuits, fried bacon, fried eggs, and milk gravy and I want you to know I ate for about 20 minutes just as hard as I could shovel it in just going crazy feeling good stood up from the table went to the bathroom and began to die <laughs> there is no way one human stomach can hold that much at one time and then the pain hit it hits first in your teeth <laughs> then it goes to your hair <laughs> and Bonnie's saying, go to bed. I can't lay down, my hair hurts. <laughs> and I'm also a telephone person when I'm drunk. I got on the telephone. That alcoholic was going to see what he had done to me. He wasn't home. He's in Boot Hill with three other drunk women. Made me mad. Bonnie said, go to bed. Finally, I got him on the phone. And he said... Ha, ha, ha. You know, he was chuckling. They all, why do they chuckle on the phone all the time when you talk to these drunks? Everything's funny to them. And he wasn't drunk that night. He had sworn off, you know. And he said, I can't pick you up at 10 o'clock. Go to bed. He said, won't you go home? I said, do you think I let my neighborhood see me like this? <laughs> well, anyway, he said, I'll pick you up at 10 o'clock, and I had to settle for that. Well, I said, go to bed, and I said, okay. And so I'm talking to her from one bedroom to the other. And uh, she says, if you're going to talk to me, come in here with me. I said, okay. And I wall walked a wall in there, and I laid down on the rug beside the bed. And she's talking to him, and I, she says, where in the hell are you? <laughs> I said, I'm right here. And she says, will you please get off the floor and get on the bed? I said, okay. I got up and laid across her feet, across the foot of the bed. <laughs> she says, will you please lay up here on the pillow? And I said, okay. So it took us about five okays to get me up in the bed before she could talk to me. And I'm hurt, and I'm hurting, and I'm in pain. And it, it believe me, it's pain. If I, I, you know, you just cry, it hurts so bad. And I'd say, Bonnie, they're pulling my teeth. <laughs> no, they're not pulling you. Yeah, they are. You know, and it goes like that. 
She got up 4 o'clock says, I've got to go to Hot Springs. I said, you can't leave me here. She said, yes, I can. She locked me in the house and left. 10 o'clock, alcoholic came and picked me up. And I, at that time, I had a, a beautiful, pretty fur coat, blonde hair, and a bottle of old charter under one arm trying to come down a bunch of steps. And he thought that was funny. And they laughed again. They laughed at me a lot. But that was the only time I ever, I can't handle that. I can go crazy for you anytime, but don't ask me to get drunk. That was my drunk log, and I promised I would tell that. Um, back to when I was in Al-Anon, one of the things that was hard for me in Al-Anon was, in my thinking and, and to me at that time and where I was, Al-Anon was couple-oriented. And boy, that was, I hated that. I used to hate that. You know, and uh, they said, well, we all went to so-and-so. There's about six or seven couples of us. And that was just like putting a red flag out at me, couples. I thought, uh-huh, couples, here we are sick and trying to get well and needing, you know, and they go couples. <coughs> and my other friend and I used to sit on the highway out there on Highland, and we'd watch the cars go by on Friday afternoon. We'd say, look at them. That's the ugliest old broad. How do they get them husbands? <laughs> we wish they'd have a flat where they get down to the intersection of Caraway and Middleton, you know. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was just misery. And I, I was, I was miserable like now, and because I was not teachable at that time. And then a situation came up where I quit going down off about a year. Uh, as I said, I had been a church person on a regular basis up until I got into the alcohol. You cannot go to church and keep up with a drunk. Now, I'm telling you right up front, it is rough to stay out all night long and work all day and then be going and sparkle on Sunday. It don't work. So, of course, church went. The other was much more important to me. And uh, then the alcoholic showed up with a girlfriend. Now, let me tell you, you know, that didn't sit well at all, and I didn't like that woman anyway. Because I had known her 10 years before that. And just to be perfectly honest, I called her the bitch, you know. And the day the night I saw her in that meeting, I walked out and I looked up at the sky and I said, God, are you going to saddle me with that bitch the rest of my life? And I didn't go back for a year. Because had I gone back, I would have made trouble that you wouldn't believe. So I stayed away. But I did go back. I went back. And uh, things began to get better, a little better, you know. And uh, I began to go to assembly meetings. And uh, still not, couldn't handle a four-step. Still very bitter about, uh, you know, I used to hate to hear this. We can travel the road hand in hand into Al-Anon and AA. And I looked and I'd say, give them a couple, you know, a few cho well-chosen words. And that used to really upset me. Because I had a bad trouble identifying as a single Al-Anon. I don't know if other single Al-Anons have a bad time or not, but I did. And uh, I heard a lady speak in a meeting one night, talking in a discussion meeting. And she said she was told by a lady in her treat once that this lady had been trying to get her husband, quote, saved so they could go to heaven together. And that, that's fine. But she told her, she says, you don't go two by two. You go in one by one. And that helped me, that sharing helped me a lot. And you don't go into Al-Anon and you don't find recovery two by two. Not with my program. I have to find my recovery 
one by one. So that helped me a lot. Now, the other part is fine, and some of the people are lucky enough to have the byproducts, and that's good. But always remember, those of you that have families, that there's always that fraction there of us. It's not because we don't want a family. And it's not because we don't want to have all these nice things and a husband to take us here and take us there. and We just don't have it for whatever reason. And there's a fraction of us in there, and we find it hard sometimes to identify. And... Uh, now, the situation with the alcoholic and myself has been over for a long, long time. But all my other stuff still surfaces. All these things I had even before I was married are still there. Those are my traits. Those are my nature. And I have to work on those. And I have to have Al-Anon to survive. Now, if I left Al-Anon, it would not take me 30 days, and I would be every bit as bad as I ever was. I would be every bit as bad as I ever was, because that's my nature. Al-Anon has done for me many things that I couldn't do for myself. I'm a person that lived on emotions. I lived absolutely on emotions. I would do anything to keep from hurting. I would do anything that felt good I would overdo. I like to read. If I get started reading and I find me some good books, I can read for 30 days. And that means you don't do laundry, you don't do dishes. You know, you just run home from work, grab a sandwich, sit down, grab a book, and read. Till you fall asleep, get up and go to work, run home, grab a book, and read. And I can do that. I'm a compulsive, whatever. I'm a compulsive eater. I've accepted that now. That used to bother me a lot. Um, I do hand work. I'm compulsive at that. But I have a compulsive nature. And only the grace of God keeps me from being... If I, if I had the uh, urge to drink, I would be a compulsive drinker. If that was my nature, I would be compulsive because I'm compulsive at everything I do. I would have, my moods were never level. I would be way up here or way down here. And if I was way down here, God help anybody that walked across my path that day because I would lash out. And I can do more damage with my mouth today than you can do with a broadsword in two days. Now, I mean, that's not bragging. I'm not saying this to brag. And anything I say is not for glory or pity it's just the way I am and I can get hold of people at work today and I'm not happy with how I handle it you know and I have a reputation for having a sharp quick mouth at work and I don't like that but I don't always do an awful lot to change it I work in a, a shoe factory in an office in the county and I work I work for men my, my bosses are men and I have to survive and sometimes you have to get down with them and get rough to survive, you know. You know, they say, you'll do, I'll say, mm-hmm, you think I will, huh? We'll talk about it. Or if they bring me work to do and they've given me a bad time, I put it in the shelf and I'll do it a week later. If they ask me, I'll say, yeah, I'm going, I was going to do it today. If they argue with me, we fight about it, you know. So my nature is there. Now, I've been, as I said, I've been single myself since my son was five and he's 20 now, so 20, 25 now, so 20 years. A single person, those of you who have been single, if you're going to have to take responsibility at home, if you're going to have to make your living and make your decisions, if you're going to have to live in a, quote, man's world, you're going to have to get some tough hide, you know. And I used to worry about that because I wanted it, I wanted to be like the book says it is, you know. I wanted everybody to love me and to be nice and be fair. It's not like that. So you, you do what you do to survive. 
and try not to hurt too many people in the process and try not to hurt yourself most of all. I remember when I first came in the program talking about love. Now, just, just for information, I have no family. My mother's dead, my brother and my father's dead, and I have my son. And that's one of the reasons that I clutch and cling. You know, he's all I've got left. He's my baby. What if God took him? What if he died? I'd have nobody left. And, uh, you know, these things run through your mind and you let you fantasize and you go. But when I came into the program, you told me, we love you just like you are. You know, we love you just like you are. And we love everybody because it's always, you know, I thought, I've got it made now. But I darn ain't going to have to love me whether they like me or not because, you know, that book says it. <laughs> well, the shock came when I found they all didn't love me. <laughs> they all didn't love me, you know. Well, it took a few years, but then the light came on. They really don't have to love me. It's I that have to love them, you know. I misread it. You know, I was so looking for this this back patting and this acceptance that you're okay, you know, you're okay, that I didn't read it right. So you really don't have to love me, and that's okay. But for me to function and for me to keep any kind of the sanity, I have to love you. Now, that might not be a big revelation to you people, but that was a blockbuster for me. <laughs> you know, I thought, well, boy, that, that's a crapper, you know. <laughs> I don't love everybody easily, you know. But it's okay. We laugh and we joke about all this, and when I got to where I could laugh at myself, I was getting better, you know. When I can laugh at myself. Now, a clown wears many faces, and many clown faces can cover a lot of hurt. And if you get too close to me, I'll put my clown face on, and we'll just tap dance around the room and laugh and talk, and you never get around to the question you were going to ask me. I never have to answer the hard ones, you see. So you can cover a lot with a clown face. But in my gut, down there where I live, I'm going to take, I'm going to quit in just a minute, but I'm going to tell you how, tell you how I really feel. Now this is not how I'm always able to function, and this is not what you will always see from me. But inside where my little man lives, my, my secret self, this is what I feel about Al-Anon. I have the higher power that we look for. Okay? And I know when I dig real deep and listen that I'm going to be okay. Now, I may not have everybody I want around me. I may not have the material things I want. But that's not really important. It would be nice and my ego would be pumped up right nicely if I could keep up with the Joneses. You know how, you know how we are. Society teaches us we have to get out there and perform. But that's not important. I know I'm going to be okay. I will be fine. Um, and that's what my higher power does for me. And I also know that even when I get into things with people, and you know how we are, if you're the kind of l I am, we didn't get here being milk toast. You know, we are strong-willed. We are very determined. We have to be or we would never have survived. And uh, I'm that way too. But I know that a person that I think the least of, if they call me for help, there'd be help there. Now, there's been times when I felt in my heart that if they called and said, I need help, I couldn't go. I probably wouldn't have went. But I'll tell you what, there'd been somebody else there. 
I would have seen help was there, and you do the same thing. Because when the call from the fellowship comes, you answer it. Now, if you're not in any shape to answer it yourself, you get somebody else to answer it for you. Usually when you get calls from help from people that you're not too crazy about, stop and think about what it takes that person to call you. If they call you and they don't like it, you know they're hurting. They're wanting some help. That's what I try to keep in mind. And there's been time recently when uh, I really was disappointed in, in a lot of things. And, of course, I knew best. I always know best. I haven't outgrown that yet. But I had to come to realize that my Al-Anon program is not my group. My Al-Anon program is not my best friends. My Al-Anon program is not world service. My Al-Anon program is a higher power, and it's 12 steps. And that's it. When I get away from that, it's just I'm out here floating, you know. It's uh, all the other stuff is important and should be done. But when you lose the higher power and you lose the 10 steps, or 12 steps, I got 10. <laughs> well, there was a time when I had 13 or 14. I was going to add a couple, folks. I had I come up with something I thought would be good to put on it. <laughs> I ain't going to tell it. <laughs> Excuse that slip, please. You'll have to give me some marks for nervousness. But it's a, that, that's where I stay. Now, that's where I am now. You know, I have to hang on to the traditions and the steps and the higher power. I don't have anything. And when I get away from it, I get in a, a mess that you wouldn't believe, and I can get in a mess. And then I have to backtrack, and it's hard. It's hard to backtrack. But the thing I want to leave you with, I'm beginning to ramble, and I'm sorry. But the thing, if you don't remember anything else, those, especially the new people, the ones that are here for the first time, we always go back and we say, how can we get them interested in service? How can we get them interested in service? You know, it just goes on and on and on. You love them well, love them into service. You know, they say, bring them heart and we'll love you to wellness. If we've really got anything to offer in service, if we really have anything that's attractive to them, we can love them into it. Now, that's my opinion. And I'm entitled to it. I want to thank you for listening to me. Several of the people here have heard parts of my story. And some of them have uh, heard more than parts of it. <laughs> and I hope that I have kept it honest, ladies. <laughs> if I haven't, I'm sure I'll hear about it. But that's the best of my memory. And let me, let me tell you another little thing about the alcoholic. The alcoholic has been released with love, and I'm sure he's grateful. <laughs> Uh, and he will always be special. I will always love him. But he is no longer an obsession. And bless his heart, I know the only do surveillance on his house. But he's 10 years plus sober. And he still has traits that I think are just tacky as they can be. But that's beside the point. He's got premium, quality, continuous sobriety. And the higher power that I know has let me watch that every year of it. And I've seen it grow, and I've seen it fail, and I've seen it grow. And it took me about six years to ever get to the point that I could sit back and say, there's not very many wives in this fellowship of ours that has got to see their husbands grow in 11 years of sobriety. 
and I only got to see the good parts. See, I didn't have to see, see them when they were on the dry drunks. And, you know, I just go to me and say, aren't they doing great? And go home, that's the end of it, you know. <laughs> but I am proud for that person. And I'm proud for that person bringing me where I am. Someone had to get me here. And if someone had to get me here, I'm glad it's the one that did. And I hope him many, many more years of sobriety. And uh, if I keep the sanity I've returned, I hope I stay many more years in Al-Anon. As I said, all of you don't have to love me, but always remember, love the fellowship. If the fellowship goes, we all go.